If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Last week in chapter 18, we saw King Saul trying to kill David. And tonight in chapter 19, we see a lot of King Saul trying to kill David. There's a pattern here. I was thinking today that how cartoons have changed dramatically in the last several decades. I think everybody has a different memory of cartoons depending on when you grew up and whether or not you had cable, which I didn't. Um, but it seems that it's changed quite a, quite a bit, especially if you've seen any of the movies about DreamWorks, right? I mean, like, animation has dramatically changed. But many of the cartoon, uh, cartoon paradigms have also changed. I mean, do you remember the olden days? How, how would somebody die in cartoons, right? What would fall on them? An anvil. If that didn't work, you finished the job off with a grand piano, right? It was, it was just so simple, such an innocent childhood, smashing people with large objects, right? They don't do that anymore, and, and, and you know, it depends on, on which cartoon series you grew up on, but, but think back on how many episodes. Perhaps you remember uh, some of those episodes where uh, someone is, one cartoon character is chasing another character, and to get a picture of this, they show you a map, and out pop the two cartoon characters, and they just go running around the map. Do you, you, do you, picture, what I'm, you picture what I'm talking about, right? Well, uh, it makes me think of how the coyote would chase the roadrunner all over, all over the map, North and South America, just in like one episode, back and forth, and they always crisscrossed, of course, and some might get distracted. But that's kind of what we have going on in our text tonight. Just like in chapter 18 last week, we're seeing King Saul armed now with three or perhaps even four new murderous plots. He's chasing his nemesis, David, all over the map. And sadly, this is a bigger part of a bigger picture. We're seeing, we're watching as King Saul absolutely self-destructs in a really dramatic way. So much so that it seems like his life could be fit into a cartoon. I mean, it is wild when you think about it. And tonight we're going to continue in on many of the same themes that we explored last week, but I trust that we will find fresh encouragement as, by God's grace, we fill in a little bit more of the picture of what God is like as he reveals himself to us in this text. Our main idea this evening is as follows. The nations will rage and plot against the Lord, but it's all in vain. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you'll look down with me at Psalm or 1 Samuel chapter 19, we'll read this chapter in its entirety. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he's not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, 
For he took his life in his hand when he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. Then, verse 8, there was war again. And David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael led David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul's messengers, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, Oh, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, Well, he said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah. And he told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went, to li- went and lived at Nioth. And when it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, so that they also prophesied. Verse 21, when it was told to Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers a third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. It gives light to our lives, and we need that light tonight. So, Father, would you illuminate this text by your Spirit? Use me in whatever degree you consider fit. And so, Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, that can be blown away, forgotten. Because no one needs to hear from a man. We've seen what happens when we follow men. Let us hear from you. Let your words remain. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I see it, there are several central themes and lessons that emerge from this text. 
There are dozens of applications. I don't have time to sort all those out. So let me encourage you, take these home and think, okay, how else could we apply this? But perhaps the first lesson that emerges from this text is this. Mankind opposes God's kingdom because we see it as a threat to our own kingdoms. Humans see God's kingdom as a threat to our own kingdoms. In 1 Samuel, Saul is a hot, royal mess. Ever since Saul's sinful sacrifice back in chapter 13 and God's subsequent rejection of Saul in chapter 15, Saul is becoming more and more troubled, perhaps even more and more demonic. He is sliding into spectacular destruction. Chapter 18, last chapter, featured three, maybe four ways, depending on how you're counting, that Saul plotted to destroy David. And here in chapter 19, Saul picks up right where he left off with four new murderous plots on David's life. We learned back in chapter 18 that the main reason for Saul's hatred of David was jealousy. He knows that he has been rejected by God. Remember, God told Saul that he's rejecting him for a man that is better than you. And so Saul knows this. He knows that the kingdom is being given to another man. And David, in all of his heroic military feats, I believe that it's becoming clear to Saul who the next king is. This has made Saul, our insecure baggage dweller, manic with paranoia and jealousy. In chapter 19, not only does Saul's jealousy persist, but it intensifies. And as I said, after Saul's mad plans have failed, he simply devised four more of the same, which also failed. In verses 1 through 7, we see this first plan. It's not that creative. It's an open, blatant plan to have David assassinated, right? And we'll address some of the details later. But the first thing I want you to notice is, is thanks to Jonathan, Jonathan is able to pacify his father. But look down at verse 8 and look what happens here. The text says that there was war again and David went out and he fought with the Philistines and he was successful again. And then right after that, I mean, things have gone back to being peaceful between Saul and David. But as soon as David has another success, what happens to Saul? His jealousy is inflamed again. And so he sets another plot in motion. So church, what we see is we see Saul jealous of David. And he's jealous of David because he sees David as a threat to his own kingdom. Now, hopefully by now, you're beginning to see the way that David and Saul are pictures. They're historical figures, but they're pictures of something much bigger. They're looking ahead to bigger figures. David is looking ahead to Christ, and Saul is very much in many ways looking ahead to all that opposes God's kingdom. So hopefully you're picking up, you're picking up on this now so you can understand such a conclusion. And if you've been following along with us on Sunday nights, we've been trying to distill the storyline of the Bible into a few manageable parts. And we've determined that it's God's kingdom. The kingdom of God is the central theme of the Bible. And in fact, it is the center of all of history. It is the center of reality. That there is a God and he is king over it all. 
That's the story, right? From the beginning of time, we have seen that there are only two ways. I mean, even before man was created, there are two ways to respond to God's kingdom. We can look at the angels and see angels who have fallen and can tell that you are either for or against God's rule. You either say yay or nay. And the story of sinful humanity, from Eden to Babel to Corinth to the end of time, has been that we have rejected God's rule, choosing instead to rule ourselves. That is the essence of all of your sin. And that is the essence, frankly, of all of the problems in your life. It all traces back to the fact that mankind has rejected God. Others and ourselves have rejected God as ruler and have chosen to do it ourselves. That's the essence of sin. And here in the text, we see Saul resisting God's kingdom because if God is king, then Saul can't be king. If David is king, then Saul can't be king. And so he resists him. And all sorts of evil comes out of that resistance. You see, David is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah, which is a clear and present threat to Saul's rule. There can't be two kings. There can't be two kings. Not in your life, not on any throne, anywhere. You and I are each giving our life to the building of a kingdom. You spent today building a kingdom. The question is, whose kingdom is it? Is it yours or is it Yahweh's? Is it God's kingdom or is it your own? One kingdom will stand and the other will not. But let's move a little bit more into the meat of this passage. The, the bulk of this passage brings us to this central theme that God is mighty to save. God is mighty to save. We see four deliverance episodes in this text. Let's walk briefly through each one. I don't have very creative names for this. I'm sorry. I don't alliterate very much. The verse seven verses are devoted to Saul's public assassination plan. Even though Jonathan's covenant of friendship with David is probably pretty well known, Saul still tries to conspire with David to kill him. But immediately we see that Jonathan is true to his word, and so he warns David of the plan. Then we read about how Jonathan makes this arrangement where David will be near him when Jonathan talks to his father in a field, and he'll have some sort of reassurance that Saul is no longer violent. And I think we probably have some helpful information about how Christians can live in a violent world and how we can even be diplomatic in the way we see Jonathan talking to his manic father, but I'll leave, I'll leave that to you to explore. Because we see Jonathan using this combination of rational and moral and theological considerations, all of which he used to try to get Saul to stand down. And one thing to notice here is how Jonathan reminds Saul of David's victories. You see that there in verse 5? Look down at verse 5. He asks, will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Now, this seemed to have some sort of effect on Saul. It triggered something because we see on how, David, how Saul responded. He says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Which, of course was a promise that he broke, or maybe it was an outright lie. But if you've been following along in Samuel, that should ring a bell. 
Those are the exact same words that Saul said back at Jabesh Gilead when he was first confirmed as king. If you don't remember, I'll, let me remind you. Back in chapter 11, we saw Saul coming in and being at the, at the beginning of his kingdom. He was gracious and he was merciful and he refused to kill those men who were against him. Do you remember? There were some who were against Saul. They said, hey, this guy isn't going to work. Saul was merciful and those are the exact words that he said. I think that this has the effect. It seems like it reminded Saul of what his life had been like. But it is definitely for you and I, the reader, to remind us Saul has not always been like this. This has been a decline. We'll pick up on that in a moment. But of course Saul's plan fails, all because of Jonathan's heroic action. So keep in mind, the savior of plan one is Jonathan. Okay? We'll keep that in mind. The second scene... Saul's back to the old spear, verses 8 through 10. Plan 2 is just a good old chuck the spear at him kind of tactic. This is like the, the wrestler, all right? This is like the redneck version of, of how to take care, right? So, and then once again, we get this dark, ironic piece of foreshadowing. I find this interesting. I never noticed this before. Because in verse 8, David is out winning these war victories. But where is Saul? He's back home with his spear. Where should have Saul been? Oh man, that makes me think of a problem David had, doesn't it? David picks up and does some of the Saul-like things. But we'll get to that much later. Just like Saul, David will get into trouble when he's sitting around the palace when he should be off at war. But when David returns victoriously, Saul's jealousy is once again aroused. And so while David is playing the lyre, Saul again chucks a spear at him. Man, you talk about a stressful work environment, right? I mean, if you're, try, you're trying to play an instrument and you're like, is he going to chuck it at me? I've got to be ready. You've got to stay on my feet. Can't sit down, right? I mean, it, it's, I can't imagine what that would have been like. And so David, again, steps aside and flees for his life, never again to return to Saul's service. Once again in verse 9, we read that a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, which is an interesting concept and it can be difficult for us to make sense of. How can God send a harmful or an evil spirit? I mean, how do we make sense of that? Well, I think the answer comes to us when we begin to recognize that, that this should probably be seen as a part of God's ongoing judgment on Saul. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Saul was sinning because God sent an evil spirit. No, the, the, these are Saul's decisions and the evil spirit is coming in judgment and in response to that. Saul is the Old Testament picture of a reprobate. One who walks in faith, and then fails and is abandoned by the Lord. So much bigger study there. We see Saul has hardened his heart against the Lord. God did not harden his heart. But unlike Saul of Tarsus, God didn't stop him either. God sometimes intervenes and softens hard hearts. And God sometimes sends them on the path that they chose. Straight to damnation. 
Saul had been rejected by God, and I see this, this evil spirit from the Lord, as being part of God's judgment and part of his chastisement on Saul. Saul is reaping the consequences of his own dark idolatry. He chose the sin. No one has ever twisted a human's arm into sinning. I'd also like to point out, I think this is interesting, that I think there could be a connection between Saul's jealousy and this evil spirit. Think back to the New Testament. I've been reading about Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, where, where the Apostle Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. That's an interesting phrase. Don't give the devil an opportunity. I believe that by our actions, we can place ourselves in the path of evil. When we harbor bitter thoughts, when we persist in viewing sinful material, when we refuse to repent of known sin, we are opening up our hearts to all sorts of evil and wicked and I would say demonic activity. I mean, think about it. The Bible says that if you resist the devil, what will he do? He will flee. Well, what happens if you don't resist the devil? He'll set up shop. And what's that going to do in your life? Now, don't just think in terms of really bad people. Think of the ways that sin is really comfortable. It feels We never do sin knowing that it's dangerous. We're always tricked by the enemy, by the evil one, but into thinking that it's safe and that it's good. What sins have you been tricked into thinking are safe? In a sense, Saul's jealousy invited an evil spirit to take up residence. We should remember, church, that sin is not as tame and harmless as Satan or even the world or even the church as a large may incline us to think. It will destroy you. The Savior in the second scene, I guess we should say it's David. I'd like to think in terms of David's quick reflexes, right? God gave him these reflexes and he either got out of the way or God somehow interfered with, with Saul's you know, throwing mechanism. Maybe he was tight or maybe there was a stiff breeze. I, I, I had some fun imagining all the ways God could, have, God could have done this. But either way, he misses again and the spear goes clanking off the wall. Spear me once, shame on you. Well, how's that go? I don't, I don't know how that goes, right? But David is out of there. And once again, David is delivered. Scene three. David out of the window. Okay, and I don't have time to explore this tonight, but just think about some other stories in the Bible that are so similar to this. I'm still trying to figure some of this stuff out. I see a lot of it. I'm just trying to interpret it. But once again, we see a scene that seems so strikingly familiar to Rahab. And when Rahab delivered Israel's spies as Joshua stood on the edge of the promised land. Yet in this case, we have David's wife, Michael, the beautiful idol worshiper. And she is the one who God uses to rescue David from Saul. 
The story goes that, the true story goes that Saul sends David to, he sends men to David's house to kill him. And so Michael employs a variety of lies and of deception. And ultimately she convinces David to escape by a window. And verse 13, it's interesting to us because we learn that David's wife keeps household idols. Now the word here is for a really big idol. I read one guy, he said they're, they're life-size idols. So think like, think of like a, I don't know, six foot two idol. I don't know if that's true or not. But they're big. It's a big, a big idol. And so she took this big idol and she put it in David's bed. My goodness, it hasn't changed. It's like straight out of a movie. I'm telling you. She put it in a bed with a pillow of goat's hair, which... Maybe having us think back to some other things in the scriptures. But she, she does all this and she, she does it to get David a head start. And then she lies saying that he's sick. And then she lies again saying that David threatened to kill her if she didn't do it. Right? This is not the Proverbs 31 woman right? that David has found himself married to. But think about it. Here we see God using the idolatrous, lying daughter of a reprobate Saul to help David escape. So in this scene, Michael is the savior. Scene four, fun part. Chapter 18, verses 18 through 22, we come to a fourth scene where in chapter, verse 18, we read that David has now become a fugitive and so he goes to the only place he's got left. He goes back to, to Samuel. So David traveled back to Ramah, where it appears that Samuel is living in a commune of prophets. The Bible is not boring, right? And so we come to the best scene in the whole chapter. Saul gets word that David is at Ramah. So he sends a group of his SS officers, right? His secret police, his henchmen, and they come to pick up David and to kill him. But when they get to Ramah, this is so fun, right? What happens? Whoops! There's some guys prophesying. It's like, squirrel! <laughs> they can't, I mean, they get so distracted. I mean, the, in verse 20, it says that they saw a group of prophets who were being led by Samuel. So it's the real deal. They're, and they're prophesying and they get caught up in the moment, right? They get caught up in the moment and the text says that the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. So they forget about their murderous errand. I can see it's just like the kid who like forgets to bring milk home. He comes home with ice cream and says, I'm sorry, we, we were walking and there's this prophecy party and we just couldn't, we're sorry, Saul. Right, so I don't know how this worked out. I don't know if they stayed there, but either way, word got back to Saul, so he sent another crew. Same thing happens. Whoops, prophecy party. Word gets back to Saul, does it again. Same thing happens. Whoops, they get caught up in prophesying. And so I can just see Saul grumbling to himself. Man, if I got to do anything right, I got to do it myself. So Saul gets in his Prius, he drives out, and what do you think happens to Saul? Verse 23, the spirit, I just got to read it again because I can't, almost can't believe it. The Spirit of God came upon Saul also. As he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And the chapter ends, as many chapters in the Bible seem to end. Somebody laying naked and everyone asking, is this guy a prophet, right? 
Okay, what in the world do we do with this, all right? How do, I mean, how, how do we untangle some of this? Well, first of all, we need to talk about the word prophesy first, all right? Now, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week or not. I don't know if it made the manuscript, but last week, flip over, look at verse 18, verse 10. Here we read that the next day a harmful spirit from God, okay, so we have a spirit from God, and it rushed upon Saul. And it says, the text says that he raved. So the ESV says that he raved within his house. That is the same word for prophesy, okay? I'm curious if any other trans, I didn't look at other translations on this, but that's the same, it's the same word. So the word prophesy can be raved or almost, it's like a frenzy, right? Which kind of fits with some of our, maybe some stigmas that, that may come into abuses of biblical prophecy. But, but that's, that's the picture. So the word can be prophesying in a positive term, but it could also be raving or a frenzy, which would be a negative term. So clearly in Saul's case, this is negative. If you're wondering about it, generally, as a rule of thumb, if you're ever in ministry and you somehow end up publicly naked, you're doing it wrong. Okay, just a rule, just a rule of thumb, right? Clearly, and I don't care if you said God told you to do it. I don't believe you. I just don't believe you. Yeah, but clearly God stopped Saul through the means of prophesying. God was using it defensively as a, as a deterrent, right? He, he, permitted, he permitted Saul to come and be involved in some sort of counterfeiting of what can be real in order to accomplish his purposes. I mean, what can God not do? So there's a, there's a lot of meaning here, but I think that one of the biggest clues in the text, and this is what I think unlocked it for me, is when all the people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, do you, does that sound familiar? Do you remember? You got, I'm telling you guys, reading the Bible, you got it, reading it over and over again helps. A lot of times you don't notice repetition unless you read it over, over and over again. Well, that should be familiar to you because that's what happened when Saul began his kingship. Back in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we see Saul being established as king. And there are some very interesting similarities to his, the beginning of his kingship towards where he is now. Let me just remind some of these. Don't write them down. Um, I'm not going to... Do you want the verses? I'm not going to give you the verses. You can trust me. I'm referring to 9, 10, and 11. If you want the verses, come ask me. I can prove that they're there. Let me just give you some of the similarities. Back in chapter 9, Saul arrives at Ramah. Okay, here in 19, what happens? Saul arrives, verse 22, at Ramah. Back in chapter 9, Saul goes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. Look down at verse 22. Saul goes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. Back in chapter 10, Saul prophesies with a group of prophets. You see how this is going? Here in 19, Saul prophesies with a group of prophets. Back in chapter 10, everybody marvels and they say, is Saul among the prophets? Well, here in chapter 19, people are mocking. Is Saul among the prophets? Naked, on the floor, uh, I'm assuming not conscious, I don't know. 
And then back in chapter 11, we see the Spirit rushing upon Saul to give him authority. And here in chapter 19, the Spirit rushes on Saul and takes his clothing, right? He derobes him. There is a tragic sort of comedy going on here, I think. I think the Lord is working to draw our attention back so we can see how far Saul has fallen. Back in chapter 10, the story ends with Saul being empowered by the Spirit of God. He goes out and defeats an army. And then here in chapter 19, Saul is disrobed by the Spirit of God. The God who made Saul king can just as easily unmake Saul as king. So here we see Israel's king lying naked on the floor in a prophetic frenzy trying to murder the Lord's anointed one. It is a bad spiritual day for Saul. I think this is a good time to stop and read from Psalm chapter 2. You can flip there if you like. I'm going to be referencing it a little bit more. But let me just read for you. This has been the text that's been in my mind a lot today. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Church, those who set themselves up against God and his kingdom will be held in derision. Those who set themselves up in opposition to God's king will be held in derision. Yahweh sits in heaven and laughs. Let this be a graphic mental image for us. Whenever we are tempted to oppose God's rule in our life, and you understand I'm not just talking about whether or not you're a believer. That, that's the big picture. But I'm talking every time that we choose to obey or disobey the Lord. That's submitting to his rule. Every time that we are tempted to oppose God's rule in our lives, let the image of naked King Saul swept away in prophecy. Or maybe perhaps let the image of the mighty King Nebuchadnezzar driven, driven from men eating grass like an oxen. Let that come to mind. God's enemies do not fare well. Stay off the throne. Pride is crawling up into God's throne thinking, I can do this. Karis tried to convince me the other day she could drive. Pride is crawling up into God's throne and taking the wheel. Get out of his chair. Let's go ahead and say with Nebuchadnezzar, where Nebuchadnezzar ends up. Saul doesn't end up here, but Nebuchadnezzar does. Daniel chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all of his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Can I just tell it to you, church? Can I, can I just say it to you? 
All who are in opposition to God's kingdom will fail, and they will fail fantastically. Whether it's the modern day slavery of sex trafficking, or whether it's your little pride issue that flared its ugly head today. Whether it's the bold assault on human dignity by Planned Parenthood or by the pornography industry. Or whether it's your own efforts to redefine God's shape for your own family. No kingdom, human or angelic, no human endeavor, no construction project, no agenda, no president, no nation, no nuclear missile, no scientific discovery, no philosophical inquiry, nothing can unseat God from his throne. This is his world. He made it. He rules it. You either submit to his rule or you go to hell. It is a binary decision. We get so confused. All who are in opposition to God's kingdom, in big ways or small ways, on a corporate level or an individual level, visibly sinful or invisibly sinful, it won't succeed. It will fail. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? He who sits in heaven laughs. Man, I want to be on his team. (laughs) Don't you? But let's also consider some other lines of application that I think we could take. I'd like to invite you to consider the diversity of God's arm. The diversity of his deliverance. In this chapter, we see God saving his anointed in so many unexpected ways. Isn't it fun? The first scene, you remember who is the savior? Jonathan. Unlikely guy. Saul's own son, right? And the guy who's going to be the, who would be the future heir to Saul's throne, risking his life to save a much younger David. The second scene, we see David being blessed by the Lord, either by his athletic ability or by Saul's inaccuracy or by stiff breeze. I like that idea. Let's go with the stiff breeze, right? Is that happening? You see the spear just fly off. Whoops, right? Either way, we see God there delivering David. Then the third scene, we see God using Michael, an idolatrous, Lying, daughter again of Saul to help David escape. And then in scene four, David goes to Ramah to see Samuel. And who do you think God would use to save him? Well, you would think Samuel. God didn't need Samuel. Samuel can stay there at the prophecy convention. God is going to use something else. God bypasses him altogether and uses the fake abuse of true religion to disrobe Saul and shame, shame the king of Saul, right? It's almost as if there's nothing God can't do. Or it's almost as if there's nothing that he can't use. He has used a big fish before. He has used a donkey before. What can he not do? What can he not do? I mean, who could have predicted any one of these deliverances? Maybe Saul missing with the spear. Not maybe. Right? But not Michael and the idol and down the wall. I mean, I'm not the prophesying thing. I mean, come on, right? There's so many different applications we could take here. But church, let this build your faith. Let this build your faith. When you have a God who is committed in the new covenant to set all of his favor upon you, 
And when that God of yours has unlimited resources and unlimited knowledge and unlimited, unlimited hesed, loving kindness towards you, is there anything that he can't do? I don't want to hear about it, right? Is there anything that he can't do? Is there any circumstance that is too difficult or too hopeless? I mean, is this not the ultimate faith builder? If we've seen God work in so many diverse and staggering ways, can we not trust him for the future? I know your lives have problems. I've got problems. I don't know how the Lord's going to work them out. That's why we need to drink deeply from the fountain, from this well of faith, so that we can face tomorrow. We don't need the certainty of knowing what's going to happen. We know who is in control. So often we get bogged down. We get hung up in our problems. I'm I'm dealing with this in my own life right now, unable to see how is the Lord going to work this out. When all the while, we're forgetting all of the historical details of God's providence. He doesn't change. He's going to keep acting in the same ways in his own time. We get fixated on waiting for a sign, waiting for God to change the circumstance, or waiting for him to grow us quicker, or, or reveal some sort of new insight on what he's doing, or, 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 or something And we fail to see what God is doing and what he has done. We focus on our problems and we wonder, has God forgotten? I was just thinking the other day, I just don't know how God can work this out. This makes me think of a story that I heard about one of my favorite theologians, a a Scottish-born Calvinist by the name of John Murray. This guy was stiff, man. I'm telling you, he's one of the most serious-minded theologians I've ever read, which makes this story even more fun. Well, he tells the story of how he was a pastor in the Scottish Highlands in the middle of the 19th century, and they were going through one of the famous famines. And so the, the very poor people were already suffering, and now their poverty was heightened, and their famine, the famine made things worse. Many of, the, many of the people from his congregation were leaving and going to America. So he went off into the woods, and he stopped by a riverside, and he knelt down praying for guidance, wondering if and how and begging the Lord would he provide And while he was there praying, he was absorbed in prayer. His face was kind of towards the ground. He heard a big thud. And he looked up, and a salmon had jumped out of the river and landed right beside him. A big old salmon. And... uh, and if you, if you read John Murray, you know how funny this is because he, he didn't seem to smile. But he, he, Murray took this as an answer from the Lord that he would provide for him in his ministry in Scotland. God has provided and is providing signs all around us. He is working right now to preserve and to sanctify you. And he's working to build his kingdom Your difficulties are a part of that. This is one of the great things about understanding the big story. That's always how God works. Almost always. He's always working through difficulties and problems and and weirdness, right? He, He delights to work in ways you don't expect. So go ahead and apply that to the future. I think we could also say, as we have this in mind, if I could quote from Hannah's song back in chapter 2, it's my favorite verse from this, the whole book so far, is talk no more so very proudly 
And let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Here's what I'm saying. If you and I consider how vast God's knowledge and power is, and when we consider the great variety of techniques that he has used in history to deliver his people and bring about salvation, what in the world makes you and I think that we can predict the way that he's going to work in our life? I mean, we can get the big picture, but why in the world do we think that we're going to be able to sort out the details? He has not explained that to us. We don't need it. We have all of these histories. He parted the Red Sea. Bread fell from the sky, right? Like, we don't need to know the details. So why don't we just get up off the throne? Let's just move off. Our our feet don't even touch the ground, right? The crown's too big. We're bad kings. Let's leave it to him. One more macro level lesson is I think that this text reminds us to let our circumstances drive us to God. While I've been studying the life of David, one of the things that I found interesting is how chapter 18 and 19 follow 17. I I get the number part, but the events, right? Chapter 17 is when David, just after being, or 16, he's just anointed king. He has this incredible victory over Goliath. And then he spends like the rest of the time running from his life, running for his life. Some of the most common verbs in these chapters are words like hide or elude or flee or escape. And doesn't it make you ask? I mean, if David is God's guy, why was his life so stinking hard? I mean, have you wondered that? Do you ever wonder that about your life? There's a lot of answers to that, which we'll have to deal with later. But let me just point out one, which I think stands in this text. God permits, and I would dare even to say that God sends bad circumstances into your life for a purpose. To drive you into his arms. That's exactly what David did. We're told in an inscription on Psalm 59 that while David was on the road to Ramah to see Samuel, he wrote Psalm 59. Flip over there just for a moment. While David is in trouble, it's clear that his heart is oriented to the Lord and he's clearly full of hope. In verse 1, it says, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. And if I jump down to verse (laughs) 8, this sounds so much like Psalm 2. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love, he will meet me. And God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. So we see God laughing again. David let his circumstances drive him to the Lord. And we should do the same. Don't waste your pain. Don't waste your fear. Don't waste your discouragement. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your layoff. Don't waste your cancer. If you come to the end of the rope... Good. You can't do anything to fix your problem? You're right where the Lord wants you. Run to Him. 
Ultimately, I think all the suffering that David was to face in his life was to foreshadow all the suffering that Christ would face. All the irrational hatred that Jesus faced in his life. Saul's hatred of David, I think, anticipates the way all the religious leaders, right, the good guys of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the way they hated Christ. And so we see David as a type of Christ. And just as we asked last week, the question that really matters is this. How will you respond to the anointed one? How will you respond to the Messiah? Will you despise his rule and seek to build up your little dung kingdom for yourself? Or will you, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the son lest he be angry with you? You see, all of us, each one of us, including myself, we have, like Saul, and then later, like David, spurned and resented God's rule in our life. And for that reason, the son is angry. His wrath is kindled. But as Psalm chapter 2, verse 12 says, there's a way to be safe. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. All of us are born natural rebels. We're anarchists. And we're guilty. So we need a priest, a king, a prophet, a lamb to pay for our sins. Jesus, the son of David, is the true and the better, the faithful David. And he is able to take away the sins of the world. So swear your allegiance to him. Turn by faith and let your song be, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we hide in your wings. We trust you. Give us faith to face our problems. Give us faith to face tomorrow. And remind us, Lord, that you are conquering sin and death and all of the curse with it. And soon we will be with you forever. Thank you for that. We ask this in your name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.